Hey folks, welcome to the Bay Shed Podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. D. Lakin Bases. I want to make sure that I always spend time on every episode to acknowledge Dan Lakin and D. Lakin Bases. Dan Lakin is the co-founder of Lakeland Bases. He's now started a new company, D. Lakin Bases. I'm honored to be a part of uh, the D. Lakin family, and uh, Dan and I co-designed a base for the Inspired By series. It is a five-string fretless with an alder body, a flamed maple top, a Bartolini pickups and preamp, a three-way mid-selector, a tap coil on the Music Man style pickup. Uh, it's 35-inch scale with an ebony fingerboard, hip shot bridge, hip shot lollipop tuners. Um, I couldn't be more thrilled to, um, to have worked with Dan to create this bass. And working with Dan was so great. And even if he personally disagreed with me, which not going to lie, not going to lie, and I kind of hope Dan hears this, <laughs> he knows he did. He, he disagreed with me on some things. Um, but he still he still went to bat for me, and I had some ideas about a preamp, um, and he talked to the folks at Bartolini for me, and um, Dan and I eventually sorted it out. And honestly, I always kind of went Dan's way on it because Dan, Dan is the, uh, he's the base designer and builder. Um, and it was, it was fantastic working with Dan and his building team to get this, get this base, um, you know, in production. And I can't wait to, to actually play it and have it realized that is D Lake and bases. You can go to, um, D Lake and There's links all over the place. Uh, at thebayshed.com. And, but check out what Dan's up to. Drop him emails. Tell him that you are a uh, friend of Ryan Roberts. And um, he would love to talk to you about basses. All right, welcome to episode 38 of the Bass Shed podcast. On the episode is Dave Swift. Dave Swift is the house bass player for the, the UK show, the show out of the UK, uh, the BBC, later with Jules Holland. Uh, Dave is going to talk about how he got involved with the show, uh, his audition back in 1991, and he's held on to the show, you know, for 28 years, close to 30. Um, and he's going to talk about some stories of, you know, some icons he's gotten to play with that I think those are really fascinating. He's also going to talk about how some of his really early musicianship days before he even played bass, how those would come into play later on on the show and create some different opportunities for him on the show. It's really cool. And um, we could have went on and on, and I'm sure he's got hours and hours worth of stories <laughs> to tell with legendary uh, musicians and uh, that he's worked with along the way. Another thing that Dave has done, is he, he had contributed to a book that maybe some of you know about. Is the book is called Jade Visions, The Life and Music of Scott LaFaro. And he's going to tell the story about how he became um, kind of a contributor to the book and how he, he met with uh, Scott LaFaro's sister and some just really cool stories that would be in a surreal experience for anyone uh, who was who an upright player or, you know, was was influenced by Scott LaFaro, which I think many of us were, uh, if, if you're a jazz player out there. Um, that, that specific little Le clip on LaFaro will be separate up at thebayshed.com. Uh, it's just a fun little story. I wanted to make sure that it got heard. I wanted to make sure it got heard. Uh, but I'm, I'm working with the time thing here sometimes. You know, I like to try to keep episodes at <laughs> a certain amount of time. And, uh, and again, Dave and I could have went on for hours and hours talking uh, about all the things uh, we agreed on in music. And I love hearing his perspective on so much and all the stories he has. So um, without any, any more introduction, here is Dave Swift. 
How you doing, man? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm, I'm actually, uh, well, it's great to, to find a link up as well, but also it gives me some respite from my three and a half year old son. <laughs> I bet. In fact, earlier on, before you called, I was just started to learn the bass parts to our upcoming uh, New Year's Eve TV show. You know, the Hoot Nanny that we do. Yeah, yeah, you were telling me about that. For those listeners that might not be familiar with Jules Holland, set up him as an artist and the show, just so we can talk about that and everybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I became aware of Jules through uh, him being a member of the, I guess, a rock band Squeeze. Okay. Uh, you know, and in the 70s, Squeeze were, were, were huge. You know, they were always on TV and, you know, they had some amazing hits. Uh, you know, like sort of cool for cats and up the junction. And um, so I, I was a fan of theirs anyway. And then Jules, okay, he, he was the keyboard player in the band. Uh, the main singer songwriters were Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook, but Jules was the keyboard player because Jules was so flamboyant. Okay. Um, he got noticed by a number of people and he started to, to be a presenter on TV of, of, you know, music related programs. So he, okay. this is like in, you know, in the early eighties and he was a very young man himself. And, uh, he did one called the tube, which he co-hosted with Paula Yates, who, uh, who was, uh, married to Bob Geldof at, at one point. Um, so yeah, her and Jules presented this program called the tube and it was a live music show. Uh, and it was on quite early in the evening and it was quite, a. a anarchic really it was very chaotic and very shambolic <laughs> shambolic <laughs> All right. well, it was, i think that's the first time i've ever heard that word used shambolic yeah well it was because it was kind of it wasn't very polished but that was the whole point of sure. it. it was like youth tv uh, right and, uh, you know and it was uh, you know uh, I, I can't remember what time it was on each week, but it was fair, fairly early. And um, yeah, so Jules presented that. And I used to watch it all the time because I just started to be a musician. So, okay. so I used to watch that show to, to look at the bass players, to watch what they were doing. And then, sure. uh, and so that catapulted Jules, you know, to, to, to yeah, but he was quite famous then. All of a sudden, he wasn't just a keyboard player and squeeze. He was a TV presenter. And right. then, of course, years later, he, he got another... TV show, which which is later with Jules Holland, which is a BBC TV show, um, and it's that's been going. It started in 1992. Okay, uh, and it's yeah, it's been going ever since, and it's it's a lot more polished version of of the tube that he was on. Uh, it's a lot more sophisticated and controlled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a live music show <clears throat> where there's numerous bands on, and Jules is there as the presenter. Uh, and he comes around, introduces everybody. He does interviews uh, with with various artists on the show. He also joins in with them as well. He often plays keyboards or piano, okay. um, whether they want him to or not. He still does it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, and but when when I first met him, he didn't have that 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 newer TV show because I joined Jules in 1991. So the TV show didn't start till '92. But yeah, he, it's it's made him a household name. Yeah. Really. Now, how did you? How did that connection happen in '91? And what was that like for you personally, growing up? Him being such a part of your formative years as a musician, what was that like to meet him for the first time? Well, uh, it was. I had moved to London uh, from my hometown of of Wolverhampton uh, in 1988. Uh, so I'd already been a, a pro musician. I'd left school at 16. I'd been a pro musician for 
seven or eight years. But, you know, just a second okay. player, not doing anything high profile, just a working, jobbing session sure. gigging bass player, you know. Um, but it got to a point, you know, and I used to do things like cruise ships and all that stuff. And uh, I had a great time, but I, I was always a lot more conscientious than the guys I was working with. You know, I always wanted to... You know, we, we, we'd play a set on the cruise ship and I'd be back in my room listening to Jacko and Stanley Clark and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. transcribe me stuff. So I was always very conscientious. So in 1988, I thought to myself, do you know what? I need a change of scene. I need to be playing with, you know, players of like a higher caliber, you know, better, better players than me, hopefully. And, uh, and I wanted to study as well. And I considered mm. going to Berkeley. But at the time, the, the fees were off the scale and I thought well that's not that's sure. not a choice so the next best thing was to move to London okay and I didn't really I think I knew one or two people there and it was a huge risk because I was walking away from a well-established career in uh, sure. my hometown um incidentally my hometown uh, the the other there's a guy called uh, famous incredible jazz double bass player called Dave Holland you probably heard of Dave. yeah of course of course you Huge know, fan. so D Dave's, he's also from Wolverhampton as well, quite bizarrely. But um, but yeah, so I moved to London and the, the main thing was I wanted to play jazz, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to do stuff I'd done before. So I didn't want to do West End shows. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, do any kind of theatre or pit work. I did, you know, I no, nothing against that, of course, because I used to sure. do it a lot. But I just I needed a, a fresh start. I needed to do something completely different, completely new. And for me, that was to play more improvised music with yeah. like-minded musicians because you know what the gigs i were doing were not things like fusion gigs you know they were just standard jobbing musicians right. gigs so, and i thought to myself well you know if, if i'm going to be playing this stuff i need to go somewhere where i can find like-minded players so i was in london doing jazz gigs mostly playing upright bass mm -hmm. i was hardly using electric at all and it was lovely i was playing in loads of jazz trios quartets uh, you know, listening to loads of jazz recordings as well, you know, but uh, yeah. anyway, one of the sax players I was working with, um, just a, a local guy, uh, and this was in South East London, um, just where I where I ended up, and he'd already got the gig with Jules. Now, bearing in mind, this is around 1991, so Jules had left Squeeze and joined Squeeze and left them and rejoined them countless times. <laughs> okay. But this was the, I think this was his final time. He'd realised that he wanted to uh, now, bearing in mind, I, I'd lost track. I'd lost track of what was happening with Squeeze and, and Jules as well, because I, you know, I hadn't, sure. I hadn't really thought about him for a long time. So when when my friend said, "Oh, listen, you know, Jules is looking for a bass player." Now, I don't know if you know this, Ryan, but Jules's first bass player, well, P, Pino Palladino, yeah, his first gig when he moved to London from Wales was with Jules Holland. Oh man! Okay, yeah. I did not know that actually. Yeah, so Pino is obviously from uh, Italian Welsh background. So when he moved yeah. to London, and I don't know when that was, I'm sure you could easily find out. But uh, yeah, one of the first people he met was Jules, and he was that was his first gig was playing with Jules. And in fact, there's an album out there they did. I think it's called Jules Holland and His Millionaires. Okay. And, uh, and there's a picture on the front of them in some open top Cadillac, and there's. As a double bass, <laughs> Pino, which is odd because Pino never played double bass. So, right, right. But um, but yeah. So when when I when I was when I heard that Jules was looking um for someone, I I did a bit of research and also the, Jules was on TV a little at the time, uh, doing some appearances in various things, and I remember seeing Pino playing with him, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so obviously, sort of Pino had moved on, and the other bass player that Jules was using was the, his former. Uh, bass player in Squeeze, which is a guy okay. Keith Wilkinson. Now, what had happened at that time, Squeeze decided they wanted to reform yet again. And okay. the drummer, Gilson Lavis, who was the, always the long-term drummer in Squeeze, but both, uh, they'd been working with Jules because there'd been a, a, a lull in Squeeze activity. But when Squeeze reformed, they had the choice, do we stay with Jules Holland on his new solo career, or do we go back with Squeeze? And they went back with Squeeze. Oof. Which for 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 the bass player wasn't that fortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for me, it was incredibly fortuitous. Yeah. Because um, so I, I'd been told by this sax player that I was doing jazz gigs with. He said, "Well, look, Jules predominantly wants a double bass player this time." Okay. He'd only ever had electric bass players before, and now because he wants to do his own stuff and he wants to do more traditional R and B blues, he really wants a double bass player so he said but he you know he, he he needs to hear you you know you'll have to go along um i think he wants to do one wants you to do an audition now here's the other interesting thing nobody else in that band had to do an audition apart from me I, oh wow i was the only one and and i think i think the reason for this was that the bass for jules is so important uh, i guess if you're a piano player and you're doing a lot of stuff in your left hand um, you want to make sure you've, you've got the right bass player that's sympathetic and supportive and doesn't get in the way. Sure. All I-, I was going to ask about that because I know a lot of piano players um, that are not playing, not like jazz guys, right? Like jazz guys, they leave a lot of room for the bass. Sure. Um, but when it's not a jazz guy, piano player, and they're playing very percussively and there's a lot of activity in their left hand, they always, they with me, they've always given me specific direction about how to go with that and how to work around with it most of the time all they want is for me to double their left hand did uh did he give you direction with how to relate to what he was doing with his left hand he he did but but not on the audition he he definitely did later on and, and he kept doing that for the first 15 years <laughs> <laughs> he, he never stopped At least he's consistent and, uh, yeah. <laughs> he never stopped giving me any direction but <laughs> no but when we first got there I, I, I went to his studio which interestingly is i wasn't living where i am now I'm, i was still in southeast london but i'm literally now five minutes from jules's private studio uh, oh cool but back then i was probably 25 minutes away from it but it, it's it's still always been local to me so i went there and he was there with a the guitarist they had a baby grand there and uh, and there was no preparation he, he hadn't told me to listen to anything he just said let's jam you know okay now bearing in mind ryan that w- when i was a session player i hadn't done a lot of oh, uh, jamming with people most of my work I- i'd been given written notation or chord charts it was all, right. all very pre-prepared and controlled i wasn't one of those players that you know that most of the guys I knew, uh, well, actually, some of the guys in Jules's band, they weren't readers. They still aren't. You know, okay. They're more ear players. Whereas for me, I was much more of a schooled player, I guess. But, you know, yeah. I, I knew that I could hold my own. I, kn- I knew that I could jam with these two, and that's fine. So we, we played, I can't remember exactly what, probably just a load of 12 bars. And anyway, seemed to be okay. But you have to bear in mind, Ryan, at the time, that Jules, this was 91, so his TV show later with Jules Holland hadn't started yet. Mm-hmm. He'd not even been given that show. So all this was, was, you know, this is the guy that used to be in Squeeze that I remember seeing presenting the tube. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't like, you know, if, if you were auditioning for the Jules gig now, you'd probably feel the pressure a lot more. 
Sure. Um, there was nothing on. There was nothing on the line at well, the well, time. There was not exactly. Uh, as far as I yeah. knew, I, you know, I, I hadn't heard of him doing any gigs or, you know, so it was very low key, and I think this probably helped me relax sure. and be very chilled out, you know. So we we played for I don't know forty five minutes or something, half an hour, and then at the end of it, he said, "That's great." He said, "But we do have." We do have some other people to see, <laughs> and I remember thinking that doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's, no, that's not you know, usually it's a good all, sign. Yeah, it's very nice, but we have a lot of people to see. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I was packing my double bass away. Him and the guitarist went outside. They had a bit of a chat, and they came back a few minutes later. And Jules said, "Oh, you know, to hell with it. The gig's yours. Uh, we start touring whenever or we, we have some gigs coming up. Here's a here's a, a carrier bag full of cassette tapes." Uh, of some gigs, of some rehearsals, whatever. Have a listen to those, and uh, and I think that there was he was on TV at the time. He he was doing something. Um, it wasn't that major, but again, that's when I was seeing Pino on there, you know. And he said, "Well, right. check out those shows as well." And he said, "Just just pick up the vibe of it." So so yeah, that was it. That was in um, that was the end of '91. So but but yeah, I, I'm the only one that that did the audition, and it was like I said, I think it was. He, Everybody else has got the the gig through recommendation. You know, right. someone said, I know a great trumpet player, and Jules has kind of gone, great, bring him along, let him do the gig, and let's see what happens. Um, but with with the bass, I don't think he wanted to take that risk. You know, he needed to meet me, see me, hear me, get the vibe, all that kind of thing. So, but uh, but yeah, he was, but later on, he was very specific with what I was playing. So first of all, sometimes, as you said earlier, he wanted me to double what he was doing with the left hand mm. in fact there's one song we do called bumble boogie which is uh the flight of the bumblebee i think it is and uh, okay and i always used to do it on electric bass now depending on the speed that jules does it if he does it fast even on electric bass that's a challenge okay um, but the last couple of tours he's wanting me to play upright the whole time and playing Oof. it on upright is almost virtually impossible <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's the line from flight of the bumblebee Say again, sorry. It's the it's the line from oh, no, uh, no, the melody. It's from... not the tune, but it's it, it's like um it's like a boogie woogie bass part. Oh, okay, okay. You, you know, it's like yeah, and it's all octave jumps, whatever, and uh, it's just about doable on a, on, a, on, on double bass. And I'm thinking, oh my days, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I worked on it. I think I got it mostly okay, but uh, but yeah, but the other thing he used to tell me is, you know, don't spend too much. He liked me to play higher up on the fingerboard you know you listen mm -hmm. to a lot of those old jazz recordings and i guess it was so the bass player could be heard they played a lot of high walking stuff sure you uh, kind of stand out a little bit more up there it's a little bit more lyrical and then kind yeah. of like a vocal range yeah, yeah exactly and, and you know so ironically you know people sort of say oh yo the money notes are down and generally most of the time they are but with jewels actually <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the money notes are up, are up the dusty end Sure, sure. But it's purely, I think it's a sonic thing. It's to stay away from, you know, that the range that he's doing in his left hand. And also he likes the notes to be played very staccato as well. He doesn't like, uh, you know, if you're doing a jazz gig and you're told to play really long, sustained notes. And Jules, he's the opposite. You know, he likes everything clipped. Okay, so he, he almost like wants this the feel of a piano duplicated with this real kind of percussive, shorter note sound. And... You know, with the left hand right just below middle C. Yeah, and, and he and he wants it to sound old school as well. And I think what it is, you know, a lot of those old double bass players, they weren't necessarily clipping the notes. But, right. what, but the recordings, because the recordings weren't so sophisticated, it sounds like they were. 
Yeah. A lot. Yeah. I mean, that's that's always the thing with some of those, like really checking out the old jazz guys. Like, you don't know what those basses sound like, or uh, yeah, because of technology, because of recording technology. Yeah, they were playing gut strings, and the action was, yeah. was super high. You know, so they were probably trying to get as much sustain as they could. But because of sure. the, the setup and the strings, it was just coming across as being very, very short and staccato. So Jules, you know, that's what he wanted me to do. Uh, okay. That sound that he wanted, you know. So, um, but yeah, so I, I really got the gig predominantly because I played double bass. I mean, he, he wasn't interested in me playing bass guitar, funnily enough. Um, he just, he decided it's all, and this was an acoustic double bass. This wasn't like a, um, an electric upright, a stick bass. This was, right. uh, and it was a nightmare. I have to be honest because trying to tour, <laughs> uh, and the band wasn't that big at the time. It was a nine piece. It was five rhythm section, four horns. It wasn't as, it wasn't the 18 piece band it is now, but even yeah. back then trying to amplify an acoustic double bass with that band, it was a, it was a nightmare. I, I hated it. You know, it was, uh, and I'd never had any experience of playing at those kind of volumes. Um, but I had to stick with it because he didn't want me to play bass guitar. It wasn't until when the TV shows started to come in and it was obvious that some of the styles I had to cover were only going to work right. on bass guitar. So, uh, but it, it took, it took me a while to convince him to let me use electric. That's for sure. <laughs> now, was this part, was this part of, so you came in right behind Pino. In the in the thing, right? Was this part of why Pino left? Is because Jules wanted a double double bass? Oh no, I, I think I think what happened is so the, the the two bass players before me were Pino and this guy Keith Wilkinson, who was the bass player with Squeeze at the time. And actually, the first yeah. album of Jules's that I played on was called the A to Z of the piano. Now, when I when I got there, Pino and Keith had already recorded some tracks on there. Okay. Well, on that album, the 80s of the piano, there's three of us on there. Um, oh, you know, we're playing electric and, and I'm playing uh, acoustic bass. So we shared the uh, the duties on the album. But no, I think what it was with Pino, I think he was because he'd already started to do work with other people. I think he'd, he'd already done some stuff with Gary Newman. OK. Um, and, you know, that fretless thing just captured everyone's imagination everybody man that kind of really i mean he's a fantastic musician uh but that really that was a thing for him then uh oh yeah well it was well do you know what pino and i used to be neighbors like in in south oh really yeah when i um not where i'm living now but the previous place i lived at pino was in the next street to me literally we were like (laughs) we lived a minute away from each other and we we'd often sort of hang out and bump into each other and um it's quite funny because you know i have a reputation for being quite a big guy i'm sort of six three and uh but pino's bigger than i am you know pino's like six five or something like that you know (laughs) it's not very often i meet other players that are talking to me but we we got along we got we got along so well and yeah i think with pino it was a combination of many things one he was a superb musician he played guitar prior to that so i think you know he had a lot of knowledge from that um but um but also you know he he was like a real hard worker and but you know a lot of it it's the same with me with the jules gig a lot of it is just serendipity you know it's timing yeah it's right place right time or it's doing something that just captures you know and like i said that fretless thing you know just everyone heard it and said oh my god because Obviously, Jacko was doing it with with Weather Report in more of a kind of jazz jazz fusion thing, but no one right. was doing it on pop records, you know. So so when no, I mean was I I mean I don't really know the 
the album history of the fretless bass or like maybe that would that, that might be something interesting to look into but his Jocko's work with Joni I would want to say that that was the most the way I think of it like that's the most pop the fretless had been yeah yeah I guess for, yeah from a commercial sense definitely yeah but then yeah and, and it's amazing really when you think with with Pina when he did um well like I said he started to play with people and, and the news spread like wildfire because yeah also at that time you know the slap bass thing had, had, had ruled the waves in the 80s you know <laughs> right, right I mean I used to do it loads of it I used to do tons of it and I actually don't do it at all now because it just got to the point where even I was fed up of doing it and fed up of hearing it you know uh, well, yeah, it, it's turned into something else at this point. Yeah, exactly. So, so almost, yeah. I think people were were looking for something different, and then Pino came along and did this amazing stuff. Yeah, but yeah. He, uh, so I think it was it wasn't the case of, um, you know, it wasn't anything to do with him not playing double bass. I think he just got so busy, he he became so in demand. Yeah, that that's why he moved on. In fact, we had Gary Newman as a guest on Jules's radio show a few years back. And I think it came up in conversation. I think Gary Newman might have stolen Pino from Jules. And it, they, okay. they were very good natured about it. I think basically Gary Newman just offered him more money than Jules was. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, um, but you know, Jules, I think, wasn't... And Jules and, and Pino are still very good friends. And and I don't think there's, there's no problem there because, again, Jules wanted... A double bass play, so right, so yeah, right. Every it was like an amicable. We're just going in different directions yeah, in our careers thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So it's ninety. It's ninety one. You get the gig. You're doing some touring. <laughs> the no, first no, time no, you actually, we 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 weren't even touring. Uh, you know, forgive me for saying that. Alone. We were just doing okay. a handful of gigs. You know, like um, okay, you know, college gigs, summer balls, polytechnics. Really, very, very, very low key things. But as they say, were they concerts or more like events that Jules might be hosting the event as a personality, and then you'd slip back in with the band, or was it like a concert and you really, it was a really a uh, musical well, listening no, I mean, thing? No, to be honest, they they were kind of gigs. We were just like a gigging band. I mean, like I said, we were okay. do, we were doing college gigs. We were doing uh, some club gigs. So it wasn't even because bearing in mind that Jules, this was pre. Later with Jules Holland, it was pre the Hoot Nanny New Year's Eve show, pre his radio shows. So he was still, you know, it was a very slow, s slow process. He 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 was, you know, just trying to get his name out there. Uh, yeah, yeah. We were just doing clubs and colleges and universities, re really low key stuff. But but for me, a gig was a gig, you know. Now, sure, of course, of course. it wasn't what I moved to London to do because I moved to London to be a jazz musician. So I yeah. wanted to be playing in jazz clubs in Ronnie Scott's, playing trios and quartets, whatever. And all of a sudden, I'm in this kind of blues, boogie-woogie R&B band thinking, well, this is kind of fun. Um, but I guess none of us realized what was going to happen next. <laughs> sure. So in Now, at this time, right before, when you're at that period, where you're just playing gigs kind of around with Jules, and you're thinking to yourself, like, I really want to be one of the jazz heavies. Yeah. And be on that scene, but you're in this boogie woogie band. Are you thinking like, okay, this is a gig, you know, like cool, you know, I'm I'm working, I'm I'm meeting people, making a little money maybe. Yeah. And yeah. like in the back of your mind, are you still trying to navigate how to get into the jazz? Oh yeah, scene? I mean totally. I all my motivation was to play jazz. So all I was listening to were was jazz. I was actually, funnily enough, Pino and I we ended up studying with the same guy. Um, uh, there's a guy over here called Joe Hubbard who 
uh, I think it, I can't remember if Joe's American or Canadian. I'm not sure, but he went to Berkeley and he he was living in London and he was offering lessons mm. of all the stuff he learned there. So I know for a fact that Pino went to him and I definitely did as well. And the main reason we both did it, I think, was because. I mean, Pino, as far as I know, didn't read music. I don't think he does. But obviously, he's a stunning player sure. and plays by ear. For me, because I started off on the trombone, I had formal classical trombone lessons at school, so I could already read music. But I didn't study music as an academic subject. So I, my knowledge of harmony um, and advanced improvisation wasn't very good. Mm, all you know so so i and i think pino probably felt the same and so we we both ended up going to joe to study harmony and i have to say my mind was blown because i didn't realize how little i knew (laughs) interesting i thought how could i have been like a working pro player for like all these years (laughs) that's always the case though that feeling never gets old like if you even now you you take a little bit of time off the base then you get back to it it's just like why has anybody ever hired me ever Uh, it's it's incredible but I, i guess you know looking back because I could read music. I could read, I guess, pretty fundamental chord symbols. I had very, very good technique. Um, I was very good at playing a lot of different styles. So all of those things got me through, I guess, that I had no problem at all. I could sight read stuff, you know, so a lot of my work was like that. Um, But obviously I hadn't been in that situation prior to moving to London where I was having to play improvised music with improvising musicians you know um right so that's and so when jules started to interrupt when jules gives you this hand or this bag full of tapes yeah and you're used to reading charts exactly is this like the first time you've really had to deal with work tapes yeah and then how did you how did you go about it did you just learn the part and then like cool i know the part so i know this song or were you actually then they're making cheat sheets or something to write out. Well, this is the form of the tune. These are the chords. Did you turn the work tapes into an academic study a little bit to process it? Oh God, yeah. And um, and and I've been doing that for the last thirty years with Jules. I mean, because I, I kind of set the standard back on the first day. So, because I was a, I was more of a reading musician. It's fair to say, you know, I could. You know, I mean, you could probably put like a like a Marcus Miller bass line or a Jacka solo in front of me, written, and I could probably play it. Oh wow! But then, if you just sort of said, "Can you come up with something like they would play?" I probably couldn't. You know, or right. or it would be harder for me to do. So anyway, so what I did is when Jules first gave me those tapes, um, I transcribed everything on those tapes, mm. and a lot of okay. it was just walking bass lines. But I just thought, you know, sure. I just want to I want to get inside both what Pino had done. And yeah. when what Keith Wilkinson, the, the bass player with Squeeze, had done, I just thought, you know, I, I've never been one of those players that just kind of goes, oh, that's kind of close enough. You know, you listen to something while you're in the bath or you're driving a car. I, I really right. wanted to get inside this. So I transcribed everything. I mean, it took me forever, you know, but <laughs> but I, I just thought at least I've, I've got it there. And so when I started doing the gigs, but it wasn't like, um, because I'm the only person in the rhythm section that can read written notation. Uh, okay. And the horn players always had charts on stage and they still do to this day but it wasn't like cool for the rhythm section to do right Uh, and 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 i would be the only one that would have charts if that was the case (laughs) so i quickly realized you know i i need to to do something i've never done before which is like learn sets off by heart 
You know? Oh, wow. Because I've always, everything I did, even from the first day I took up the trombone at school, I had something put in front of me. I had a piece of music. Sure. Uh, or a, a book or something like that. So so now I've done the transcriptions. The, the next thing for me was, you know, I need to learn all this stuff. And that was tough for me because that was what I was least experienced uh, are doing. I mean, even when I was doing jazz gigs earlier on, I was still, and I know this is, sounds terrible, um, but I was still using the real book, which I know again, with hardcore jazz players, that's that was a real no-no, it still is. Sure. Uh, I don't use it anymore, I hasten to add, because I've built the repertoire now. But back then, you know, right. I needed the books, I needed the charts, whatever. But with Jules, that, that, so that was great training for me with him, and it was a real wake-up call. It was something completely different. I was out of my comfort zone. So, uh, so yeah, I I knew that I had to have this new skill set where where I did this. I had to to learn everything. Now, what I've done ever since, funnily enough, is um, well because I, I was always reading. So when I got the Jules gig, I thought, okay, this is great. I need to do more stuff where th there's no charts. I need to do more stuff where I'm having to busk. I'm having to learn stuff on the spot, you know. And that was what was great yeah. doing the jazz gigs because people were calling tunes. I didn't know them, and then you listen and you play. So I was trying to bring my ears up to the same level as my reading skills, sure, which I've sure. never had to do before, you know. Um, so, I mean, even when I was on the cruise ships, it was funny. I was playing like Lionel Richie songs and whatever, and I was just playing the chart that someone had put in front of me. And then right. when, I, when I actually got round to playing with Lionel Richie himself, <laughs> <laughs> I realised. I thought to myself, "My God, you know." I, you know, you, you need to listen to the songs. Whereas before, I didn't even listen to the songs because I had a chart. Sure. You know, someone sure. transcribed the bass part, and I think, well, I can read this. I can read this sight, read it, and uh, but I was right. I can read this, so I know the tune. Which is, I mean, there's just two different ways. Like you can read the chart, or you can know the tune, and then you know, hopefully, you can do both. Uh, exactly. And you actually know what the record is, but then you're also like reading this chart with the record in the back of your mind yeah so this is what i do now and so I, I did that from day one so with any guest now that's ever appeared um sorry I'm, i know we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves but i i always we just it's very rare that i get given a, a chart now by a guest it's very very rare that anyone a couple of people did i think andy williams when i played with him his md gave us some charts and it's great for me because i know that i can just whiz them off no problem. I can sight read that stuff in my sleep. Um, but most of the time we get given a CD or we get given, um, we just get sent a recording, but I still transcribe everything. Now, okay. if there's time, I'll learn stuff off by heart. If not, I'll use the chart wherever I am. Um, sure. But you know, it's better, but it's, it's as important now to, to work from the recording. So, but um, but sorry. Anyway, yeah, we got ahead of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's all right. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what happened with, with with the TV show. It just came out the blue, you know. So we were doing these gigs with Jules, like clubs, bars, colleges, whatever. And I can't remember how it happened, but it was 1992, and all of a sudden, we were informed that Jules had got had got this TV show, this BBC TV show. And I think initially it was just called Later or something. I don't think Jules' name was immediately involved with it it was just called later or late night or something like that um and they wanted him to host it and they said there's going to be various bands on there and um yeah and we just kind of and we were still a bit bewildered we still couldn't quite comprehend what this all meant you know 
And then all of a sudden, it, the, t the thing started up and I started to get phone calls from Jules's secretary management saying, oh, you know, we, we've got like uh, we've got Vince Gill on the show. We've got Mary Chapin Carpenter. We've got John Prine. We need you to come and play bass for these guys. And I'm thinking, say what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because first of all, like some of these people I wasn't familiar with. And, and, and interestingly, those the first few were all kind of country singers. OK, but, but I'd never been on TV before. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was like baptism, baptism by fire, you know? So, sure. so yeah, they were all filmed at the BBC television center, uh, in, in, in central London. And, uh, yeah, I mean, some of those early ones, it was some of the bands had some of their own musicians, you know, they might've had a guitarist with them or a percussionist and, um, and, and, you know, I'd be called in to sort of, cause they, they couldn't bring their bass player. So it wasn't like a set thing, you know, like the, People have often likened what I do with Jules to like Will Lee did with the Letterman show. That's who I was thinking about when you were uh, explaining this. And um, now, when you would have to play with an artist, what would you get? Would you get a chart? Would you? I'm sure that there was a rehearsal for the show, and so you'd get yeah uh, a rundown of what the you know maybe however many tunes they're doing is. You know, when I'm thinking about Will Lee, he might play one with them you know sure. during the musical thing but this being a more musical show you're doing almost a full set yeah. so what would you get and how far in advance would you get the knowledge well the so you could check out recordings and sure, things sure sure well i mean at the, in the beginning it was very very short notice and we like i said we never got given charts because the i guess the people we were playing with which were were pop uh country rock jazz type people they they just didn't have didn't have charts so they would supply the bbc with a recording and, and in the early days it would have been a cassette right and we'd have had that sent in the post and sometimes it was like the day before or or probably at best two days before you know and yeah and you just have to learn it whichever way you saw fit and again if, if gilson our drummer was doing it because gilson doesn't read or write music Gilson would just listen to it over and over again because that's what he's always done. Same as Jules. But for me, I was intrigued, you know, because um, I wasn't a very good student at school apart from when I was playing the trombone. It's anything I ever really worked hard at. But I think right, when, right. when I got this job, I thought, you know, I, I want to be studious. I, I had that desire sure. to be a very studious player. So, so I, I would just transcribe everything, every little nuance of what was on these people's records. And the way I looked at this as well, Ryan, was – if and you know more often than not if anything's specific on a recording it's usually the bass is often more specific than what the guitar is doing or the piano whatever so i thought to myself it's important for me to 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 work out exactly what's on these records note for note so my my transcriptions yeah. and i've still got them all i've got thousands of them in my attic i kept every single one of them you know i'd Sweet. write the the artist the title of the song the date i've got yeah yeah more, you know? and um because the way i looked at it is this if i'd have just listened to it in a very casual way like i said sitting in the bath or something like that and i kind of gone yeah i, I kind of get that i i get the chord sequence i see what this happening here and then the you, you turn up at the television center to record the show and the artist kind of goes dave you know are, are you okay doing that little riff there or that little fill and i kind of go um what fill is that <laughs> yeah 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 oh can we just listen to it real quick and then you yeah. try to pick it up on the fly yeah in real yeah time? <laughs> exactly and, and, and i didn't want that to happen because i used to get caught out at school like that and i and i was always very embarrassed and i thought i don't want this to happen to me again so for sure. me doing my homework 
uh, which yeah. I which I never did at school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was 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 ultra important now, and I had this great sense of pride and professional professionalism, and uh, yeah, sure. I just wanted to be super accurate. So again, I would transcribe stuff. Now, on some of those shows, if I didn't have time, if I didn't feel confident enough, I would stick my transcription on the floor monitor. Okay. Uh, and sometimes I would be reading it, but I I knew it was important not to look as though I'm reading it. So I, sure. So that was another skill in itself, you know. But um, but as time went on, I got more and more confident. And and um, but yeah, in those early days, we didn't have a lot of time. So so that's the reason why I, I often had the chart on the floor for certain things. Now I guess with the with the Letterman show with Will, you know, because they it's a lot more arranged it's a lot more sure. you know uh was it paul schaefer would have done specific array everything would have been charted out jules it isn't like that because because jules himself isn't that kind of musician he's very much a right an improvising busking seat of his pants kind of player which is which is fine and he does it exceptionally well uh, yeah. but yeah so so it's an interesting dynamic with that band because you've got me and the horn players who were predominantly had formal training and can read music but the rest of the rhythm section uh, are not like that, you know. So it's it's kind of a, a bit of a weird dynamic. Um, but but Jules values what I do greatly because I'm kind of the um, what do you call it the the stepping stone between the rhythm section and the horns. I've got a foot in both camps. Sure. Uh, sure. And Jules knows that I'm super accurate. He's not too worried whether the drums are super accurate or the guitar or even himself. Um, <laughs> but he knows that I will be hundred percent super accurate, and there's no sure. difference, you know. Uh, and that that's a key thing for him, you know. He he really depends on that. And because the thing is, otherwise, if I approach the music the same way as say the rest of the rhythm section, it starts to become a little nebulous. Uh -huh. You know, um, there needs to be something in there that really ties in with what's on the recording. So you know, when when we ended up playing with people like Shaka Khan. Uh, and I'm having to play I'm Every Woman or Ain't Nobody, you know, you, right. you don't want to be sort of busking that stuff. You know, you you, no. you need to know the line. You need to know what's on the record and you need to know all those little nuances and that. So so I, I did that from, from day one. But but yeah, we, we often didn't get very much notice, uh, the songs in advance. And, and then when we got to the studio, you would rehearse just before the recording. The first time you meet the artist, would be like an an hour or two before the actual recording of it. Yeah. Very very short time, and and you just kind of run it. And as you're running it, of course, the the, the lighting people and the camera people are doing their rehearsals as well. So it's good for them. But yeah, it, you'd only have like a couple of run throughs um, at best, just an hour or two before the red light goes. <laughs> so it was. Yeah. You know, so it was a real kind of roast. But having said that, it was amazing training because it just made me realize what's expected of me uh, in this industry and in this band. So, but, it, you know, the, the funny thing with the TV shows is I look back, I still had hair back in those days. <laughs> I have to say, not very much. Um, I, I kind of wish I'd shaved my head sooner because it looks a bit trashy, you know. But but it's what I'm wearing. I, I, no one told me what you should be wearing on TV because I, I had no experience. And I look so scruffy, man. I look as though I'd... there wasn't there wasn't a wardrobe. Uh, no, no, somebody. No, no. We we were always just, we were always told you can wear what you want. But kind of Jules has always been very dapper, you know. Jules has been on the yeah. cover of like gentleman quarterly and things like that, and he's always wore saddle row suits. And I, and I wasn't like that, you know. So I was wearing my like, t-shirts and jeans and 
Man, I, you know, I look as though I'd just been doing the gardening or, or I'd just been you know, <laughs> underneath a car fixing an oil leak or something like that. Yeah. I just didn't, I just had no experience of it. But I thought to myself, well, you know, as long as I'm playing the right thing, as long as I'm playing the music and that, but I do look back and cringe of how terrible and how shabby I looked. <laughs> on some of that. So then how long, um, when did you, when did you start to clean it up visually? Like when did you, uh. I, I was well. I've, I've always been a very slow learner, Ryan. I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, it, it took several years. I'm afraid it took several years, and I probably so, didn't have a girlfriend at the time, so I didn't have a woman telling me sure. to shape up, really. But uh, but you know that was so that was '91. So that was later with with Jules Holland. But then I think it proved to be so popular because there was nothing else on TV like that. Prior to that, there was a, a TV show on UK television called The Old Grey Whistle Test. And I don't know if okay. you're familiar with that, but that was also filmed at the same place. It was filmed at the BBC Television Centre. But that was the, but in the 70s, I remember that was the seminal uh, music TV programme. I mean, I've got two older brothers and, and, and they definitely would have watched that but i remember kind of seeing stanley clark and george duke on on that you know but they oh wow but they had all manner of bands i mean you know you've just got to google the old gray whistle test to see what was going on but it was a slightly different format in the fact they had this guy called whispering bob harris because he had a very quiet voice um no. and he would just sit there and he would introduce the bands um he would just sit there behind a desk and he would say all the time and they would they wouldn't be an audience there it would just be you know the the bands in the studio sort of um playing away but so so this so the the, the jewels thing was there was nothing else that had been in between that so all of a sudden that jewels this later with jewels holland became massive you know and it catapulted jewels to pretty much being a household name uh, and then for the rest of us it sort of it raised uh we everything changed for us because you know we all went from being like you know no one knew who we were we were just like jobbing sure you know and then all of a sudden I, you know people were saying so on tv so on tv and then i was curious about that did you when you guys aren't taping um do you is because you're on tv do you get a lot of other work because they want to be associated with the bass player who's on tv and you played with all these famous artists do you pick up tours and stuff when you're not taping the television show i mean right now nothing's happening but <laughs> you know when the world was normal yeah well it's a very good question because it's kind of um it's the gig with jules has been a mixed blessing because um mm. well you know because when the when the new year's eve tv show started that was in 93 so that's called you know jules holland's hootenanny so that's just specifically every new year's eve and it's pre-recorded it always always has been you couldn't do it otherwise um but that became massive as well so you know because obviously new year's eve is such a big night for everyone and and if you weren't going out and you were going to put the tv on most people would watch jules holland's hoot nanny so sure so that gave us even would that be compared to dick clark's uh new york ball drop in uh in the states I, like that's kind of the big thing here sure sure i i guess i guess so because we we, okay. we, we used to have something in the uk and, and there's this guy called andy stewart who was a scotsman in the kilt and he was up in a castle in scotland and he was just uh, <laughs> a lot of people playing bagpipes and it was very old school you know i remember my yeah. friends watching it but the jewels thing was was very hip because it was we, we were the house band on there and we were we'd be backing in fact the first hoot nanny we did 
Um, and it was, again, it didn't have the, the audience in the studio. It wasn't as big as it was. It, it, it just got bigger each time. But that first Hoot Nanny, I think we were playing with Sting. Man. Um, maybe Paul Weller or something, but Sting was definitely on the first one, and it was great because he wanted me to play bass, even though he was playing bass. He, he oh wow, he very kindly let me stay, but um, but yeah, it was um, yeah, it, it, you know, so both of those became ma massive things. But then, as time went on, uh, to go back to your question, it, it, it became a mixed blessing with Jules because yeah, I did get called to do stuff with other people, but not as much as you would think. Okay. People are seeing me playing bass with all of these, I mean, kind of iconic people, you know, yeah. a lot of times we've played with Eric Clapton, with Jeff Beck. Uh, you, for the record, you are the first person I've ever received an email from that starts off the first time I played with Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> like I've never received that email before okay. from anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's a real sweetheart. Well, again, like Sting, you know, he when, when the second time I played with him, he played mandolin on on one thing and bass guitar on the other. And I just said, well, look, when you're playing bass guitar, I'll, I'll I was on upright. I said I'll sit this one out. He said, no, 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 I want you to stay. And one of the reasons why he wanted me to cue. Uh, one of the songs we were doing got to get you into my life and he wasn't sure where one of the sections came he said dave <laughs> i need you on stage to give me a cue um so ironically if you look at that video of paul mccartney yeah. uh playing got to get into my life and jules holland's hoot nanny you'll see at one point halfway through or three quarters of the way, he turns around to look at me on the camera and i kind of oh that's great i gotta look that up is that on youtube i gotta okay. pull that up Absolutely. And I either nod or wink or something like that. And that, <laughs> that was me giving Paul the cue on, on one of his songs. You know? That's hilarious. That's uh, hilarious. But, um, but yeah, I think what happened is that I, I did get called to do some stuff. I, I got called to play. Uh, Ray Davis from the Kinks called me up to play on on a solo album of his. And I, and I did some gigs and sessions and, and tours, but but not not as much as, as you would think. And I, and I, to be honest with you, I think a lot of that was to do People, because we were so busy with Jules at that point. Yeah. Because we 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 were doing that t the TV show and then and and touring, and I think people just thought, you know what, we'll never get this guy. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping sure. I'm hoping that was the case, and they didn't think, oh my god, this guy's so awful, we don't want to book him. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, right. yeah, it, it's I you know it, yeah the phone it's and also it's a different thing say with pino you know when when people were hearing him at the beginning because he was doing something very specific with the fretless thing and also he was playing you know on, on pop records he was playing original bass lines and right. playing on very very commercial things whereas you know with the jules gig um you know in, in some ways the jules gig it's when we do the tv show it's it's almost like the best cover band that you've ever been in because mm. we're playing the covers, but we're playing them with the original artists. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, so yeah, loads of bass players have played, uh, ain't nobody. And I am every woman or they've played on Broadway, but have yeah. played those with Shaka Khan and George Benson, <laughs> you know? Right. It's just like, it's almost as if you're a road player, but the uh, road act is coming to you Yes, <laughs> and, and you go through a bunch of them yeah, uh, within very, the course of a year. Yeah, very much so. So, so I think that's the other thing as well. It, it's kind of, it's a bit more difficult to stand out than say what Pino was doing, which was playing on original stuff and playing right. very particular style that really caught the imagination. So I'm kind of, you know, a, a bit more in the background, really. So I, I think, but but also I do believe a lot of it was 
man, this guy is constantly busy. He's always touring with Jules doing the TV show. And later on, Jules got his own radio show. So we would do okay. that. And of course, you know, when you when people learn about this, it's kind of great. But you think the more people that realize what I'm doing, the more the, the more they're probably going to think, oh, we're not going to get this guy. He's going to be too busy. He's going to be too expensive. He's going to charge too much. <laughs> right. And that really wasn't always the case, I promise. Now, how did you... Um... How did you feel when right before in 91, right before you do that audition, you're really looking to do creative music and get into jazz. And now you find yourself years later playing in the best cover band ever. (laughs) Well, what's this doing to you inside? Would you still have all this like kind of creative energy that you don't have an outlet for? Did you find some project to direct the creative outlet? Yeah, I think... uh, The creative energy towards? Sure, that's a very good question. I think what happened is that throughout my time with Jules, I always attempted to do as many other things as I could. So I was still doing jazz gigs, but it got got a lot harder because the touring... Uh, you know, became more intense. And we always do two big tours a year. A year. We do a summer one, like three months, and we do a winter one for three months. So, it, it, you know, and so we're all over the country. I mean, we did a couple of world tours in the early days. We don't do those so much anymore because it just got too expensive. But we do a lot of stuff in Europe. But, yeah, it, it became more and more difficult for me to be doing these small little intimate jazz gigs. <coughs> You know, yeah, and also as well, I have to admit, I mean, and I love jazz still. I mean, I'm in my music room here looking at my CD collection, and um, you know, 99% is kind of jazz or jazz funk or jazz fusion, whatever. So it's still a music that I'm very passionate about. But but these days, and back then, even I, I was literally struggling to be able to do kind of what I moved to London to do, you know, that dream of being a hardcore jazz musician and being known for it, being recognized. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, I'll still always be called a session musician. Whereas, and I suppose that's accurate, but I like to sort of describe myself as a a session musician with jazz sensibilities. Sure. You know, man, I really, I really think like the best ones were, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, the Jamerson was an upright player first and like all that stuff. Like that's all, uh what was the baseline for once in my life like how live he plays that and how in the moment he plays that it's like he's playing a jazz tune do you know what that's the mo- I, I got to play that line because i transcribed it you know um yeah, yeah. Where, um where, it's a good one when i first got that book standing in the shadows of motan it's a great book it's a great great resource book but not everything in there is completely i i i one completely agree with you and i've also so the other part uh, of what I do at the Bay Shed is teach transcriptions, and I transcribe them all myself. So I'm very passionate about learning from the record. Sure. Um, like, I've taught music theory at music school, and, uh, like, I'm aware of the academic side of things, too. But I think no one gets hired for that shit. <laughs> <laughs> you get hired to make things feel good yeah. and find your place within the music, and that's what you learn from records. Oh, sure. Um the transcription thing, I, I think, is super important. I mean, I mean, I've got. I agree. Yeah, I've got folders. I've got like a Jacko folder. I've got an Anthony Jackson. I've got a Pino. Folder, <laughs> yeah. You know, no, me too. Me too. Like I've like on my computer folders with everything in Sibelius, and I don't because I want them to look clean uh, and create PDFs. I don't handwrite anymore, but I used to handwrite. Oh yeah, I, I still do. Like I said, I'm staring at my table here, and all I can see is just like scraps of paper and like uh, eraser 
sort of shavings and uh, pencil yeah, shavings. Yeah, yeah. I still I still yeah. do that. But um, but yeah, with well, as you said, with Jameson, with that, I I, I got to play it with a, a female singer over here called Corinne Bailey Ray. She wanted to do it on. Oh yeah, put your records on. Yeah, put the your, big exactly hit. that. You know, yeah. and um, well, that's a story because we were due to do that one with her, and we I learned all the part, did all the work, and then she decided at the last minute she didn't want to do it. Um, this does happen occasionally. The artist will, sure. well, well, you know, yeah, they'll they'll just. We, we happened with Gladys Knight as well. We were supposed to do three songs with her, with the rhythm section, and then she just decided in the end she wanted to do it with her MD. She just wanted to keep it really simple and cut down. But you know, I'd done these transcriptions, man, these really elaborate transcriptions of, uh, you know, of, of, of her hits. But then again, the yeah. BBC they still paid me. Uh, sure. doing the work and uh, but the thing is that with transcriptions I love doing them because I always say to people the the transcriptions uh, the hard work is its own reward even if you don't get chance to use them the fact that you're studying the music you're um, you know you're digging deep into it you know you're scrutinizing it um, man I obviously 100% agree with you and I think that uh, then maybe not everybody has the same and I have other you know, other professionals and friends that have been on the podcast, they'd be like, man, I hate transcribing. <laughs> but, and I understand it. It is, it's laborious. Like it takes, it takes a lot of mental focus oh. just to show up to the desk uh, yeah. <laughs> to start doing it. <laughs> and then you start transcribing it. Oh. Uh, but once you really get in, you, you realize all the subtlety oh. of what really makes these things great. I think there's no better way. I think yeah. there's no better way. I mean, so, I mean, I, I was, I have to admit, I was a lot more enthusiastic, um, you know, in, in my younger years. I mean, I remember sort of transcribing Jacko's uh, Donna Lee from his solo album. Uh, sure. And that took some time. My goodness. Yeah. And that was before, yeah. and I think I was using the cassette player, man. I don't think, it, I think I was even. Oh my pretty, God. You know, and it was pretty torturous, but I was really pleased with myself. Um, but as time goes on, because as you rightly say, it's very time consuming and it really does take every bit of your mental energy and your ears are, are just having to work so hard. And I think yeah. as I've gotten older, um, I'm probably not as, as enthusiastic. <laughs> as <laughs> Fair, but, but it's funny because the more you do it, the quicker it gets because yeah. your ears just become, you know, like at this point I can, I can almost visualize a rhythmic thing. Sure. You know, like something that's complex, more complex rhythmically. Like I could just visualize it now. I'm like, okay, cool. I don't have to count it out the same way. Yeah. I don't have to look for the notes uh, the same way. Like it really, it really does. It takes you to a different place as a musician. Yeah, 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 de definitely. And um, yeah, I mean, for for me, it was it was important, and it was a sign of respect to the player as well. So so when I I pretty much worked through most of Standing in the Shadows. Because okay. I thought to myself, you know, the, these these can be better. These can be more accurate. And and so when yeah. we did, uh, you know, when when we did for once in my life, I was so thrilled that I I played my own transcription because I knew how accurate it was. But I I wanted to pay homage to 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 James because I've got so much admiration and respect and interest. Oh yeah, the, uh, absolutely. We had Martha Reeves and the Vandellas on the show, the TV show, and we had to play. I think it was Dancing in the Street, Nowhere to Run, and Jimmy Mac. I think. Okay. Um, okay. Now on Jimmy Mac, you know, because Jameson played upright on a lot of those early, early yeah. Ones, you know, I think my guy is on upright as well. So anyway, uh, I was playing up upright on that, and I transcribed meticulously whatever he did, or any little skips or whatever. And he was really sweet because um, 
when we did the rehearsal, I can't remember if it was after the rehearsal or the broadcast, but Martha came over to me and she said something to the effect of, man, you must, you must really love James Jameson. And I said, oh, well, <laughs> I said, because I was listening to you and you played everything just right, you know, just, just as he would with all the inflections. You know, you must yeah. be a big fan and you must be. A... And I said, absolutely. I said, if it wasn't for him, you know, I wouldn't wear you know, he he he's the st- the start of it all, really. But that he is, he is. So yeah. um, and and as you as you rightly say, you know, he was a jazz double bass player, and I think that's the reason why he was such a melodic bass guitarist. Carol Kay, I think, was a jazz guitarist, wasn't she? And that's why yeah, there's so yeah, much such rhythmic kind of inventive playing. So, but interestingly, um, for for me, because I started on the trombone, but weirdly, I wasn't an improvising trombone player. I was. I mean, I was playing in every band on the trombone before I even picked up a bass. So I was playing in in big bands like swing bands. I was playing in a funk band, a brass band, a concert band, a, uh, an orchestra, like literally anything you can imagine where a trombone would be. But it was always written down. Sure. I wasn't improvising and I wasn't doing solos. So it wasn't until I, I switched to bass that I realized, oh my goodness, you know, th- at some point I'm going to have to read chords, I'm going to have to busk, I'm going to have to improvise, I'm going to have to do a solo. Uh, it's such a different skill set. Like those rhythm section instruments, uh, the one, yeah, obviously the bass, but like I can't imagine sure, trombone sure. players getting work tapes. You know, like it's such a different world or yeah. or having to deal with a number well, system or uh you know, when people just like you get a yeah, well, chart and it's just the national number thing. They've been together for so long, but they're they're particularly good. You know, if we if we're playing something that a lot of the stuff we get to play on Jules' TV show doesn't have horn parts on them, especially on the New Year's Eve show. We, we're playing stuff that's never had any okay. horns at all, but the BBC want them to be involved. So there's about four or five of them in the section, different sections, yeah. and and they're they're the arrangers. And they they just come up with stuff. And sometimes they'll do it on the spot. You know, we'll be we'll be running something, and they'll just start to play. And at the end of it, they've got an arrangement. You know, but I guess if if you've always done it like that, then you you. Yeah, I have I have some friends okay. that uh, my friends are Justin Timberlake's horn section, and uh, I think I think Justin Timberlake bills them as the Tennessee right. Kids. But in town, they're just known as the Regiment Horns. And like that's they do a ton of sessions, and now even more so since Timberlake. But um, that was their that was yeah. their gig. Is like you just hire them, and they show up and create arrangements on the spot, yeah, and they knew you, how to you know, work with each other, enough, and was, it was it was dialed in. Sort of second nature, but it, it was interesting for me. What happened is that I gave up the trombone, um, so that was I started on fourteen, took up bass. So having lessons on the trombone, but I was self-taught as a bass bassist. So both I took up double bass and bass guitar at the same time while I was still at school, mm-hmm. but I taught myself. Just got a few books. Oof. That's a lot to take on because it's yeah. you're learning the bass, but like two very different sure. physical yeah, ways well, it was actually my <laughs> of that, dealing um, with the instrument. That, that did it. And, and I recently discovered he's still with us. I, I, I've lost contact with him. Uh, 36 years ago and I, I recently discovered he's still around and we linked up and I spoke to him on the phone because you know he, if it wasn't for him oh, we cool. wouldn't be having this conversation now because like I said I, I with trombone that's what I learned to read and that's sure. what I learned about music theory um, but with but shortly after that I took up bass guitar because 
some friends wanted to form an offshoot of the school band and we needed a bass player. So I initially got a bass guitar, but then when my trombone teacher heard right. I could play that, uh, he said, you should definitely take up acoustic double bass because if you do decide to do this for a job, which I never did, not for one second did I think about I could do this professionally. I, this was just for fun. Um, he said, you would get more work if you play upright and electric. So when I left school, my trombone teacher was a fixer yeah. in the area. He would book me for, for gigs and shows and a lot of pit work. Um, but he'd always book me as the bass player. He wouldn't book me on trombone because okay. he wanted the trombone gigs himself. <laughs> but so, so I carried on playing trombone probably okay. up until I was about... 19 i think but then i i felt as though i had to make a decision i was spreading myself too thin i was playing trombone bass guitar double bass and i just thought and i felt as though it was confusing the issue and i was exhausted trying to be at the top of my game with all three instruments so i i actually gave up the trombone completely for yeah for decades for several decades and whenever it was i took up i took it up again because i always missed it i always thought one day i'll i'll come back to it you know and I did, I took my, you know, I remembered how to play it, just had to get my chops back. But the cool thing about this is that what I then learned from being a bass player, so in other words, reading chords and improvising and whatever, and playing jazz as a bass player, I was able then to switch back that all of that knowledge onto the trombone. You know, so, so there's this kind of interpollination sure. thing kind of sure. going on that's what one, so, so my trombone playing helped my bass playing with the reading side of the discipline but then the bass playing helped the trombone with yeah, the yeah, yeah. improvisation and, and playing more free and that and uh and it is quite cool actually because occasionally on jules's radio shows in particular most of the guests are singers but every now and again we'll get bass players that come on and uh you know we had jack bruce from cream and we had mike rutherford from mike and the mechanics we had tony visconti uh sure. you know bowers producer but predominantly a bass player and even Susie Quattro came on. And of course, they all wanted to play bass on the show. And, you know, for me, I just said to Jules, listen, I'll, I'll just jump on the tr on trombone. I'll just join the horn section, you know. So, um, yeah, I've actually played trombone with all of those guys, which is kind of quite fun. So I'm glad that I came back to it. And, you know, I mean, enjoying it. But um, I know we got away from your question about the jazz thing. So, yeah, I, I tried to do as many jazz gigs as I could because I wanted to keep my jazz chops up. I wanted to still be inventive. But the, the Jules gig did seduce me a lot because, you know, I'd never played in, in a famous band. And all of a sudden I was getting endorsement deals. I was getting asked to be. Uh... <laughs> yeah, man, I was that's what I, that's what I was going to say. It's kind of once you once you start being yeah. uh, this idea of recognition or being seen or getting praised within a certain um, line of work, it's hard not to just to. I would follow the yeah, gravy and train and follow the work and like now you can you're making a living <laughs> you know and you're getting you're getting a little you're getting and, uh, some free stuff so well, it's, 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 it's hard not to that, you know, know like continue my, you on know, that path double bass i was buying double bass strings which we you know notoriously expensive and any anything i was paying for but you get the jewels gig and and all of a yeah. sudden everything's for free and, and and then you've got roadies that are moving all your gear. You have nothing to touch anything. You just, and also interestingly, Jules, when we do gigs, when we tour, Jules doesn't do sound checks. He doesn't, he doesn't like doing them. He doesn't like getting there in the afternoon oh, and wow. hanging around. So we have the same crew pretty much that we've had for forever. Some of them have, have, have come and gone and, and been replaced, whatever, but it's pretty much yeah. the same touring crew. So they do a line check of everything. 
during the day. So we literally turn up to the gig. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, Jules likes us to get there, you know, as long as we're there 20 minutes, quarter of an hour before the gig, he's kind of cool. But, you know, you can get there as early as you want. But, yeah, we, we literally just go out on stage. And the first we, we touch our instruments is, is the first song. So, But, again, our, our crew set things up. And, uh, you know, sometimes if, if the hotel is close to the venue we're playing at, I'll go in early just to have a fiddle around uh, if, I, if I have new gear or whatever, you know. But most of the time, you know, we, that's how it works. So, so yeah, and, and then I started to think about those jazz gigs, you know, when you've got to drive somewhere and you've got to set your own gear. You got to pull up, you got to drop off your stuff, then you got to circle the block looking to where you park your car. Then you got to walk two blocks back to the gig and then start pack, setting up. There was a great thing on Facebook, and it had a photograph of a, of a jazz club when COVID first hit, and the jazz club was empty. There's another photograph pre-COVID, and it was still empty. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. You know, and all of these things started to 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 get to me, you know. And and the Jules thing, I mean, it was kind of the closest I'd ever had to a rock and roll lifestyle. You know, it was kind of, and I'm not talking about massive excesses, but I'm talking yeah. about fun and you know having a laugh and you, you know you know flying to places yeah you don't have to do all the grunt work when you're just doing the the day in and day out gigging sure. but, and, and it was great and i absolutely loved it and i did get quite seduced by it but then you know i started to, i always felt guilty i was thinking oh man you know but i'm not studying i'm not playing jazz as much as i wanted to i'm not studying it you know i'm not listening to it as much because there just wasn't time you know but but I, I i did what i could you know in between all the things with jewels i mean i still do them now um you know, I still actually my main thing outside of the Jules gig now are doing jazz gigs. And my wife, Lucy Marilyn, um, we haven't we've only been together five years. We got married last year. We've got a three and a half year old son. And but Lucy is a jazz professional jazz singer. She wasn't when we met. She could okay. sing, but she when we when we met, she told me about her passion for jazz. I said, "Who who are your favorite performers?" You know, I thought she was gonna. Uh, you know, say Miley Cyrus and stuff like this. But all of a sudden, she's saying, "Oh, Carmen McRae, Julie London, Dinah oh, wow. Washington." I'm thinking, yeah. anyway, and she's Lucy's like 33 years my my junior. I'm thinking, wow, you know, she she loved jazz. So over time, the last few years, she she's become a professional jazz singer herself. So we do gigs together uh, at jazz oh, cool. venues, and it's it's like doing standards. And she has her own show called The Legendary Ladies of Jazz. So she'll do three Carmen McRae things, three Peggy Lee songs, a couple of Dinah Washington's and Julie London stuff. And I'm, if I can do it, I'm always a bass player. So, so I'm still, yeah, my main gigs outside of the Jules thing are, are, are jazz. So I'm still, still doing them. I'm yeah. still playing upright, but you know, I, I guess people still won't call me an out and out sort of jazz player because of my association with Jules. But that's really where my heart lies, you know, is, is playing acoustic double bass, you know, playing jazz, playing standards. What are uh, what are the, what are your some of your favorite records, jazz wise? Like going uh, all the way back on on either instrument, on the double bass or on electric. Like what uh, what records do you always kind of check in with? One of the first recordings I I heard that really caught my attention was uh, well actually my I've got two older brothers. They're they're eight and eleven years older than me, and my. My middle brother, when when he when I took up double bass, he he bought me a, um, a Charles Mingus album, and it's uh, it's okay. called Nostalgia in Times Square, and and I'd really not heard any jazz before, and I'd certainly 
never really listened to double bass players because I'd only been playing trombone for a year. I'd only been playing bass for months. And he bought me this this Mingus album. And um, man, and, and I love Charles Mingus. I mean, I love him as a bass player and as a composer as well, man. He's so edgy, so gritty yeah. and so atmospheric. And that's, that's like jumping into the deep end, man. Like the first jazz record being yeah. Mingus, like... <laughs> With, with no context of what Mingus was doing or like where all that was oh coming God, from, yeah. uh, that's know, crazy. Didn't know who he was, I didn't know his background, but yeah, it, yeah, it's called Nostalgia in Times Square, and and I love going back to that because it's it, it was from my brother, you know, and it was him saying, well, I guess if you're going to be a double bass player, you should, and I don't know if he knew anything about the album, you know, may, maybe he just went into a record shop and just saw it and it caught his attention i don't know but uh, sure. but you know but i i love going back to that because it's probably the first time i really listened to it but listened to to jazz carol k was important too but mainly because of her books because there were no i had a trombone teacher but there were no bass teachers nobody was teaching especially electric bass so for me i just bought every book i could find i bought and carol k were the main books uh, and there was another okay. one uh, by, and it's, it's interesting. Both my early books were by female bass players. There was a, a lady called Valda Hammock, who I think is was was in California. She might still be with us. And she did two books hmm. um, that I, I saw online, not online. I, I saw in a magazine I sent away for. So, yeah, my first two bass tutors were female, Valda and and Carol. Um, and those books were, were really important because that was it. I didn't have anyone to go to. I, I, I like the recordings, of course. But um, what did you what did you gain from um, Carol's playing? I mean, her her thing was just like setting up these parts that worked great for yeah. the song. You know, and then she's playing with a pick. With Carol's thing, you know, it was the first time someone was telling you how to fret the notes, how to. And of course, it was all pick playing, whatever. But I quickly realized that if I was going to be a working musician, um, that Carol's school of thought and style of playing was going to be more helpful than than the Jacko thing. So I was still transcribing, yeah. um, you know, Jacko's lines and Stanley's things. But it was almost kind of doing it for my own enjoyment and entertainment i i i knew sure. that what i was reading in carol's books and listening to her playing was going to be was going to be more beneficial to me because if I, I thought if i played more like carol when i when i did gigs and that i, I wouldn't be fired <laughs> right no yeah that's you're Compared absolutely right that's, I mean, that's, to do <laughs> Jacko's fills and runs and stanley's whatever you know so um so you know i i, I but i had like a foot in both camps there i i loved all that early jazz fusion and stuff like that. But then I was, I, I still love songs. I, I just, you know, like listen to the Carpenters, I think, which was Joe Osborne, I think on there, you know, so I, I realized pretty early on what was going to be. Uh, and that's the reason why not now, I mean, I mean, I, with a Jules gig, there isn't a bass seller. There used to be years ago. I had a big bass feature, which was cool. Um, I used to go out front with a double bass and Jules said, you do whatever you want. And we did a tour with Sting. We supported Sting many years ago and this is quite it's quite funny because um we went on and i did this big bass feature and we do rang the door we came off stage and stings in the wings and um as i'm coming off stage he gives me a big hug and he said man he said but he said i love your playing said so beautiful he said it reminds me of charles mingus <laughs> oh wow man that, that's that's a sweet thing to hear specifically for you with your relationship yeah, to charles I, I thought, mingus 
Yeah, and like so, you have this bass icon uh, telling you you sound like your yeah. formative yeah, bass. It, Man, that's huge. That's it was huge. really sweet. It was very, very cool, you know. But uh, I think sort of m maybe Jules thought the, the the bass solo was getting too popular, so he got pulled. And um, <laughs> and there isn't really a bass feature anymore. Couple more questions, and we can wrap up. One: What are you still learning on Jules's gig? You've been in it for what twenty eight years yeah. now, roughly. Yeah. Um, what are you still what are you still learning from playing with the same guys in a book that you're very comfortable with and guys you're comfortable sure. with it's a it's an act you're very comfortable with what's what are you still gaining okay. from this um <laughs> well I'm, I'm certainly sort of learning the benefit of of isolation and tranquility in my hotel yeah <laughs> um, that's for sure because you know when you when you when you're younger you always want to hang out and you always want to sort of spent time sure. with them. but the the thing is i i realized you know as, as much as i enjoyed that rock and roll lifestyle and having lots of fun and parties and staying up late you know i i realized that one as you get older um you know you've got to start looking after yourself you know and yeah. uh, I, I never used to right. make breakfast you know because i was always probably still in the bar uh when breakfast was yeah. being served but um but i mean and, you know n never anything terrible but just you know we we all were having a good time for a Long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. That's what happens. The gig's over, and the band goes out and hangs. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, exactly. You know. But I think uh, over time, you know, with all due respect to the guys, because you know, we we travel together, and we were in the band room, we're on stage together, and afterwards. So I I, I, I was starting to realize, you know, I, I, I'm still very studious. You know, I I always want to study. So I, I on tour, I take my trombone with me. Um, and I also started to play guitar last year because it's an instrument I always wanted to play. Both my brothers played it for fun at home. Um, okay. Now, the thing okay. with guitar is I just couldn't get on with the tuning of it. So I tune my guitar in all fourths. Okay? Oh, wow. So, so C and exactly, F? Exactly. That's, some, some guys yeah. keep the two top ones the same and they tune everything down. But I go up to C and F. And I, and I play six and seven string basses, so this is cool for me. But I've got a couple of guitars. Sure. And, and you know what? There's... By taking that on tour and by, you know, still having a drink with the guys, but really, you know, sort of getting back to the hotel room. And if I'm not too tired, spending time, you know, practicing the guitar as, as even at this late stage in, in my career is still helps me massively with understanding even more about harmony and um, melody and sure. soloing and stuff like that but i i can only do it with it tuning forth and it's great there's some there's some books been written on the subject and i've been and it's great because when you learn chord shapes you, you they, there's more repetition of them because it's the same thing all the way across yeah. because you don't have that weird g to b bump which always great. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that always messes <clears throat> yeah, it up yeah so um so i'm definitely um you know, you know I, i'm appreciating because I, I still want to study i still want to learn i you know i want to be a better player than I was last week. I want to be more knowledgeable, you know. So, um, sure. so it's it's really more what I've what I've learned about myself. You know, I, I think I want to make better use of my time. And and interestingly, I, I recently took up the tuba because um, I I messed around on it as a kid before before the trombone. And I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm playing a brass instrument, I should maybe pick something that's more bass orientated. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I've got one Yamaha kindly loaned me one, and, and I've been playing it here at home, and I absolutely love it. Man. I mean, Jesus, this thing is bigger than me. Um, <laughs> it, it takes a lot of work. It's a lot harder to play uh, breath-wise than the trombone. But uh, I'm just thinking it'll be sure. fun with Jules 
um, you know, that I can use it in the horn section or sometimes if we're doing any recordings, um, you know, you don't yeah. need to hire an extra tuba player in because I'll step in and do it. So, um, so, you know, I'm having a lot of fun with that, but I think with the Jules gig, you know, it's still, you know, I'm still learning about, about restraint and good taste because, you know, Jules doesn't like any showboating. He doesn't like any unnecessary flamboyance, you know, sure. so the Jules thing. Now, because you had described him as being flamboyant at the beginning of the, is, is it because he likes the space for himself? I, I think it is that, and I think maybe he thinks if yeah. if, I, if I play play too too flashy that um, I'll get noticed more, and uh, and I'll leave that. You know? <laughs> right. I remember we we did a gig years ago, and 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 I knew that Jules likes me to keep it very very simple. He likes me to keep it very very basic. You know, it's different when we're playing with other artists. He would never say to me. Or, you know, don't play what's on the record. He knows that the artist wants whatever it is. It doesn't matter how complex it is. But on his own stuff sure. or, you know, playing more traditional stuff. And we did a gig years ago. And um, I don't know, I, I, I cheekily put a little fill in somewhere because I had some friends in the audience. I thought to hell with it, you know. And Jules yeah. came up to me and he noticed it, man. He didn't miss anything. And he came up and he sort of said, uh, yeah, he said, you know, you, you know, I, I love your playing. He said, but... Man, he said, I did notice at one point he went a little bit weather report there. <laughs> and, and, and I'm laughing inside because I thought to myself, wow, I, I wish. Uh, right, right, right. Like, really? You think I sound yeah, like Jocko? Yeah. Awesome. Like, that's how bass players hear that. It's like, oh, but, man, yeah, really? To Thanks. me, it was like a really weird backhanded compliment because he was telling me that, you know, sure. he didn't want me to be doing that. At the same time, he sort of said, oh, it sounds a bit weather. I think, oh. <laughs> A very kind of view, yeah, I think. Exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's still still very much, you know, he, he about restraint and control, which and and not in a bad way, you know, it's it's a discipline thing. The the jewelry for me, it is the constant is, yeah. reminder of of doing what needs to be done, nothing more, nothing less. It, it's a discipline thing, and and that's that's always been there from day one. So that's still a key thing, you know. I I talk about that a lot when I talk through uh, transcriptions of like you know you can take a line a Bob Babbitt's um, just my imagination super easy baseline right it's like four notes yeah. the whole time but the fact that he didn't that's yeah. the lesson oh yeah the lesson from that line is the fact that he didn't add anything mm -hmm. the lesson is that he kept it those four notes the whole part yeah. That's that's a that's some serious mature. Well, do you know stuff. what my I think my I've got some really favorite players, and and do you know what they're predominantly pick players. I really love bass players who play with a pick, but they're but not rock players necessarily. So you know, always sure. loved, always loved Carol. Um, I love Steve Swallow, mm -hmm. both on double bass yeah. and electric. Um, I think Bobby Vega is is wonderful. I love uh, you know younger guy called Cody Wright. I don't know if you're familiar with Cody. Oh, I'm not. Yeah, check Cody Wright out. He plays guitar as well, but he's he's a monster. You know, he's, he's one of my favorite players. But you know, if I had to pick my favorite living bassist, I'd probably have to say Anthony Jackson. Anthony for me is is something very 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 special, very unique. I've been following Anthony's career. Yeah. You know, I've got so many of his recordings. I've met him a few times. Um, in fact, I was with him. Me and Lucy were with him the night he had the stroke. A few years oh back, gosh. we were with him just before he had it. He was he was with Hiromi, uh, and they were playing at the Jazz Cafe in London. 
And because I'd met yeah. him a few times and I'd written a couple of articles on him, really short sort of things, just like a little homage in a few magazines. And uh, so, you know, he knows who I am. I've even got an Anthony Jackson Federa signature model that he okay. set up and he signed for me. I still got that. So, yeah, he's a real he's a real hero of mine. But, yeah, that night we, we were chatting with him after the gig. He called us up on stage and Lucy and I were chatting away. And when we left, I think it was shortly after that when he left the club with the drummer Simon Phillips. He fell outside and I think that's where he had the stroke because the next day his mm. tour manager called me up and he said – when Anthony was speaking to you last night, how was he? Um, did he sound right. okay? I said, he's certainly perfectly fine. You know, he's obviously Anthony speaks very, very dignified. He doesn't gabble away like I do, you know. And uh, um, and I said, no, he was just as he was. So it must have happened literally as he was leaving the club. But it was the same night we were with him. But, but yeah, I, I love Anthony's playing, his sound, the whole pick thing. You know, they, um, you know, I've done a lot of transcriptions of of anthony's and uh it's a shame actually because because with ain't nobody and i'm every woman he's not on those those shaka right. Khan ones he's on a lot of the other stuff but he's he's not on there but but yeah i mean i i love those guys and i still listen to them and i still sort of study them and even if i don't get to play how they play and, and what they play it's still important for me to you know to have that i, I want to be excited like i was when i was younger i still want to listen I, I love that. I love that. Me too. Like I'm still chasing that initial yeah. excitement, even though like I've heard so much music and like I understand music and the bass and uh, what I'm listening to on these records in a whole yeah. new way. I'm still chasing something that excites me the way that the first Stanley Clark, you know, the first record I ever bought was Stanley's first CD, just self-titled. Yes. And I remember just listening to that over mm. and over and over. I had no idea what was going on, but I oh, loved yeah. it. And I and I'm just always looking for excitement like that all the time in all genres. Yeah, and, of music. and you know sometimes it's hard to do. I mean, I'm 56 now, and you know I've, I've been a pro player for 40 years with Jules for 30, and you know there's lots of things that have happened over the years. I've had a lot of health issues, um, you, you know, which which have sort of knocked me for six, and you know my I've, I've lost both my parents. There's a lot, of, you know, but but nothing more than Oof. anybody most other people have experienced. But you know you get a lot of setbacks, and and sometimes it is hard. To, to to have the same sure. enthusiasm but i don't know for me i just love music and the whole particularly bass thing so much and and i still go to you know bass conventions i've been doing some online uh bass convention things chatting with people interacting uh you, you know i love going to like music shows uh, I'm, i collect basses i've got a hundred bass guitars somewhere <laughs> oh, I, wow. I, i'm still nice. this huge bass geek really uh, yeah you know it, yeah. It, i just can't i can't shake it off you know and um so but yeah i think with the jewels thing it's tricky because it would be so easy to try and to sneak and it would be so easy to get annoyed that i'm not able to be more flamboyant people have sure. said to me over the years they said man if we had the jewel we, we see you there and you know you stand there very solemnly and you do what you do but they said man if dave if we had that gig we'd be putting our foot on the monitor we'd be doing this and doing that and whatever and i said and yeah and you'd be fired yeah that's why they don't have the gig <laughs> i said you know why do you think i've kept it for 30 years is because i don't do exactly that, you know so but it's right. still important to keep that enthusiasm up outside of it you know but and and the jewels thing it's so unique it's such a unique gig that, that there's there's no other gig where you go out as a touring band but then you're part of a tv house and radio band and you're playing with these sure. 
these icons, you know, these living legends. And you just have to, and also I've learned a lot about social interaction from that. You're you're Mm. dealing with people, even though they're famous, you know, some of them are not as confident as you think. So sometimes, you know, you've got to be a social worker, you've got to be a babysitter, you've got to be a a confidant. Um, you know, you've got to be a lot of things to these people. Um, you know, when, when we played with Smokey Robinson on Jules's show and it was a rhythm section, our own guitarist couldn't make it. So Jules got Eric Clapton to take his place. But we were we were rehearsing during the day and Smokey wasn't there. And we were told he, he's not going to make it until the recording of the show. Um, and, no. and Eric looks to me and he said, are you kidding me? He said, we're going to be playing with Smokey <laughs> with no rehearsal. And I and I said to him, I said, Eric, welcome to my world, mate. Welcome. Uh, this is hilarious that Eric Clapton is is worried about uh, playing. Yeah, that's a, he, that's funny. But that's actually this is perfect because it does lead me to the next thing I wanted to ask, which is, what are some of your favorite takeaway moments like that with these stars? And these musical icons that you've got to interact with on a personal level. And you've got to, you know, give Paul McCartney the cue. And you're, you're talking Eric Clapton down off the ledge. Like, hey, Eric, it's going to be all right, buddy. It's going to be okay. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the McCartney thing was is a great example. Because I'd already had the good fortune to play with George Harrison. Uh, we oh, we wow. spent George's 50th birthday with him. The band had been invited to a party. And Jules was doing some filming with him for the Beatles anthology. So I'd already met and played with him and I'd met and played with Ringo. So, so Paul was the last one out of them. And, and yeah, you know, just, and playing got to get you, got to get you into my life, which for me, the, the main version I knew was the earth, wind and fire one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, but when, but he was so nice of him to sort of, uh, cause he was playing mandolin on one song and then bass guitar on the other. And I just assumed that he, he would, he would have wanted me to sit it out. So the fact he let me stay, and we had that fun with the cue thing. So that was um, that was a, a lot of fun. I mean, the, another favorite of mine is uh, was Al Jarreau. I absolutely adored mm. Al Jarreau. I, in, in the 80s, when I was working on the cruise ships, I just used to listen to him every day, all day. I loved his albums, and I had all of them. Okay. So when he came, he did the, the, the radio show, but he did the TV show, and he wanted to do a track off his latest album. And the, the track was called Last Night. Uh, and that's on YouTube as well. And it was just Algero, me, Jules, and, and a percussion player. And um, my only regret with it is I wish I'd have played acoustic bass because on, on the recording, it was a synth bass. That's the other thing with mm. Jules' show. When we do these pared down versions, you know, sometimes we just do these more intimate acoustic versions of it. And and I was still trying to make the bass sound like a synth, you know, so I, I had a fret. A right. fretless P bass going through an octave pedal, and afterwards I thought, man, I should have just used my double bass and done it much more as a, a low key uh, acoustic thing. Anyway, by the by, just playing with this guy was glorious. Yeah. And at the end of it, if you watch the video, um, you know, Jules shakes hands with the percussion player, Algero shakes hands with Jules, and I'm standing at the back, kind of thinking, okay, like Billy No Mates here, you know, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Don't worry about me. And at the last minute, you could see Al turn round, and he and he just is it say, "Oh my God!" You know, we can't forget Dave. You know, and he leans over and he yeah. we do this big handshake. You know, and I just, oh man, nice. that was that was so wonderful. So I, I love that. Um, you know, the smoky thing was was funny because I said with Eric, uh, just was incredulous. I I had to keep saying, Eric, this is this this is what happens on this show, man. I said. You know, we're just going to have to get on with it, you know, because he was used to rehearsing for days and weeks and months. Uh, 
Oh sure, before a tour, and then it's it's the paint by numbers. But you've rehearsed, yeah, exactly. all that for those big and the, tours. And the song right. that we did, it was the, that song that Nora Jones had a hit with called "Don't Know Why." So there's quite a lot of chords, sure. in it, you know. And um, but yeah, sure enough, we, we 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 had to run through it ourselves like an hour before, and then no sign of Smokey. Smokey turns up. We don't even say hello to him. He just walks out into the middle of the room and starts to sing it, and we have to play it no rehearsal at all with him and at the end he comes over and he gives me and eric a, a big hug and it's the first time i've ever met yeah. Smokey. i've never met him in my life before you know but he just gives me a big hug and he said that's so beautiful thanks thank you so much thanks guys you know and then he went off and i'm thinking no nice. oh, that's cool that's um you yeah. know so I met him after we would played with him so so yeah so right. to get to play with those two those those icons on on the same the same but that's something special. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, you can, and and also I normally play standing up. Um, but Eric said to me, he said, you know, because okay. we were right next to each other. And he said, do you mind if we sit down? Is that okay? I said, no, I'm happy to do it. Uh, and if you watch the yeah. clip, although I don't, I think the BBC have taken it down. I think it might be a copyright thing. But man, I'm sitting next to Eric and he's doing a solo. And I, I'm, the grin on my face, it's like the check. You know? <laughs> because I remember thinking, you know, does it get any better than this? I'm, I'm. No, no. I mean, that's you know, that's that's kind of it. You know, like you're you're sitting, you're playing bass with the dude. You know, you I mean you're <laughs> with Paul McCartney. You're playing bass for the guy that played bass to change yeah. the world. You know, like man, exactly. that's it's so surreal. And, and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the most recent one, I guess, was with Paul Simon, because um, oh, so wow. that was a couple of years ago. It's very recent, and and he just got a new album out, and there's a track on there called Wristband. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. Again, the, 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 the clip is out there on YouTube, but it's fundamentally, it's voice and bass duet. It's like, that's it. That's, there's virtually nothing else in it apart from some hand claps. Now, normally when I do Jules's show, the bass part that I'm playing is, is, isn't always that flamboyant. It's, it can often be very, you know, just, just normal standard stuff, you know, but unless you're playing with Shaka, of course, but, um, and then sure, with, with sure. this, I heard it, man. I'm thinking, oh my god, this is a bass feature. This is this yeah. is like a bass solo with with some vocals on it, you know. Um, and it was on double. Did you have to bring out the fretless oh, no. for that? Because I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, but I can't pronounce the gentleman's name. Um, yes, it's the. Uh, played like that Washburn five string well, fretless. Do you know what? I I think he is on the album, but I think he's playing a stick bass. Because uh, oh. it sound, or, or he's playing an acoustic, but it, it sounded to me on the recording that I got given, it sounded, it, it sounded like a double bass to me. It was either a double bass or an EUB, um, and I think he does play. And I know the guy, I know you go, I, I go, you mean, but um, but yeah. So it was, it was going to be a double bass thing, and it was, um, oh, I heard it, and I'm thinking, oh my days, I've never had anything yeah. like this before on Jules' TV show in all these years. So I got there, and normally they stick me at the back. And all of a sudden, um, because of my height, the the producer always has a go at me for ruining their backdrop. <laughs> yeah, and that's why yeah, they right. try and stick me at the back as low down as possible. But they put me at the front, so I'm standing next to Paul. Oh my uh, god! Well, <laughs> wow, what well, was that know, the like? Funny, you know, I felt a bit awkward because you know I'm six sure. three, and Paul, the lovely, lovely human being that he is. I'm, I'm not sure if, if Paul's five foot or he, he might just be five feet or something like that, you know. Oh, wow. Okay. I was thinking he was always around like five, two, yeah. five, three. I oh, didn't no. Know I, mean, he was... yeah, I mean, it could okay. well be. Forgive me. And I don't, you know. 
I, I I have no idea actually. I just remember like that old video of you yeah, can call yeah, me yeah. out with him and Chevy Chase, and like Chevy looks like a Someone giant. Someone said to me, they said, "Why do they keep putting Paul Simon next to very very tall guys?" Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, so we're standing next to each other. Now, what the great thing about this was that we, because you know you have to run through it three or four times, and and so you're sitting around while the the film crew are getting the camera and the lighting ready, and. It was nice because you, you get to know the artist. Now, normally, if I'm at the back, you don't really get to speak to them much. But because we're standing next to each other, right. we were chatting for ages. And and, and he oh, was such great. a lovely guy, you know, He because his father was a double bass player. So he's asking me about mm. my double bass, where it was made, how old it was. He was admiring. Yeah, he was talking about touring. He was saying that you know he's he's not enjoying it as as much, uh, you know. And and I I relate to that because the older you get, it gets a lot harder. It's 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 pretty grueling as time goes on. But and we sure. were talking about David Bowie as well and all sorts of things. But um, when we started to to rehearse this, and it was so much fun because the the bass part is very very cool. And like I said, it's it's pretty much a voice and bass feature. But um, the one thing I noticed. He kept changing the – he kept displacing the bars, if that's the right word. It's like, you know, he kept kind of either making a two-bar phrase into a three-bar phrase or making a two-bar phrase into oh. a one-bar phrase. And he kept, like, sort of shifting the, the you know, the, the bars and that stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, this right. isn't what was happening. Because I just learned what was on the record. And I yeah, transcribed yeah. it, and he, and I'd learned it. So it was okay. But I'm thinking, oh, my, my goodness, this is changing every time. Um, and it, 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 literally every time we did it, every rehearsal. And I'm thinking, boy, oh, boy, I, I need to really be on this. So I had to keep switching. I had to keep switching bars to to keep. Did it ever kind of come out the same way? Did he ever find this rhythm where he liked how the phrase should be? Uh, stated and just kind of kept it there or was it always moving oh, it was, even you know like on the taping was the taping a version that had not yeah been yeah rehearsed? it was different on the taping as well you know so um Crazy. yeah you know so the, the, like the the two there's like a main theme uh, of the bass thing uh, but then but when he goes into the that's the verse um but when he goes into the chorus it's like sort of bump bumped bump bumped bump 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 bumped bump bumped bump bump but he would sort of go bum 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 bum. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. He, he he would just. I think that I think displacement is the right word. He'd move these bars around, you know. So I'd have to like double the first two, double the first bar, as opposed to going on to bar two. I'd have to play bar one twice. Sure. <laughs> you know. And, right. um, you know, and we had one of our trumpet players was playing on it. And, and, and I felt sorry for him, man, because you can't really hide with a trumpet, man. If you're, if you're doing a set riff uh, and right. it changes every time, you, you can't hide from that. You know, where at least with the bass, you can kind of get away with it. But anyway, it was it was a challenge. Um, so it wasn't man. a technical thing. It was just more a, a rhythmic. You, you, and you just had to keep your ears open. I'm thinking, well, you know, if I can't yeah. do this after... After 40 years, I shouldn't be here. So it, it went great. I, I, I went with him. Everything he did, I adapted. I was listening around the corner. Um, and it was great. And he loved it. And, and, you know, you watched the clip and he shook my hand afterwards. And because uh, and, and that was that was very special for me. Because I remember as a kid, one of my brothers had an album. And I think it, I think it was called There Goes Rhyming Simon. 
I think it's okay. called that. And it's got like some great, it's like his solo album. It's got some great tracks on there. And and I used to sing along with that as a kid. I absolutely loved it. Every track on that album is a, is a, is a winner. So yeah, to get to play with this guy, you, you know, uh, um, and, and, to, and to have, and to play that, something like that song, which is a big bass feature. And of course, so many yeah. people contacted me and said, oh my God, we saw that. That must have been incredible experience you know well done what what a roast that must have been you must have been terrified because <laughs> yeah, again yeah. i i've never had that opportunity to play something so flamboyant with jules on, on his show before it was a real standout moment for me you know so uh so yeah it's interesting that that's one of the more recent things that was really an incredible experience for me what a man it, it's so great that you've had the opportunity to uh kind of connect <laughs> your your musical upbringing and your life upbringing and what music was to you in these formative years sure. to this professional experience with the same people uh with paul simon and sting and sting referencing mingus and al Jarreau. uh that's really cool oh, yeah. man like that's a well, well and, and same with yeah thank you very much i mean with with, with shaka the first time we played with it was the mid-90s and it was when jules only wanted me to play double bass and um I knew she was coming on the show, and prior to that point, everything was doable on Upright. And when I heard she wanted to do Ain't Nobody, I'm Every Woman, I said to Jules, listen, I, you've got to let me play bass guitar. I'm not doing, <laughs> I'm not playing, I'm not yeah, playing yeah. those tunes on this. And at first, he said, are you sure? I said, no, Jules, come on, man. Uh, you know, it took some convincing, but when that happened in the mid-90s, like 94, 95, that was the turning point where he he was okay with me using both. But the first four okay. years, it was just... It was just upright, you know. But with with Shaka, I thought there's no way I'm go I'm going to break my fingers trying to play. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's just that's not that music. That's not that sound. That's not how the yeah. notes respond uh, to the overall nature of yeah, that feel. Yeah, exactly that, you know. So so she was special as well. Again, it, it's been great playing with the people who who I grew up buying records. So so definitely, yeah. uh, George Benson was great too. We played on Broadway with him. That's on YouTube. So yeah, because these are the guys that I bought their records, you know, and to get to play with them. And I, I think my older brothers must have been annoyed with me because they're the ones that were at home playing all of these records with, with Paul Simon, and sort of uh, you know Jack Bruce and and, and all all of these sort of guy in the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and I've got to play with most of these and I thought my brothers must hate me. <laughs> They're the ones that bought the records and and I was probably in their right. rooms ruining them when when they weren't listening you know. But uh, yeah, and now you now you're playing. Yeah, with them. you know, but it's funny. It's been a very nostalgic time for me because um, you know recently somebody contacted uh, you know me, speaking with my trombone teacher who who was again if it wasn't for him and here's the quick thing I must sort of say right so when I was at school I, I didn't take it up until I was 14 because I was kind of struggling with trying to find I was good at sports I I, I was I love basketball I still do but um, I was trying to find something other than sports to excel at so. To cut a long story short, I, I went along to him when I was 14. I went to play the trombone. He said to me, you're too old. And I said, really? You know, 14. But what he meant is, and I didn't discover this until last month. Um, what he meant by oh, wow. this, all these years, I just thought he was being flippant. Okay. But what he meant right. is that the school discouraged peripatetic visiting teachers to take on pupils at that late stage. If they're going to be... Uh, they, they they can't warrant 
you know, hiring the person to, to teach a kid. Because, you know, they, they, they think if you take something up as late as 14, there's not enough time left before you leave school at 16 to really um, play the instrument well. You know, you need... And all of sure. his pupils have been playing since they were 11 and 12. Uh, and he... And I said to him, I said, so... He said, I said, so it wasn't your decision. I said, when you said you're too old, I said, well, wasn't you being horrible? He said, no, it, that was the school, the school board's decision. You know? And he mm. said, but I saw something in you, he said, and that's why he, he loaned me a school trombone. He said, go away. This is how you blow this thing. Um, come away two, in two weeks and let me assess what you can do. And those two weeks, I went nuts. You know, I love the instrument so much. I, I couldn't put it down. I didn't stop playing it. And I came back two weeks later and he went, Wow, he said. He said that's yeah. it. He said you're you're my pupil, you know. But I but I only discovered this last month that he he fought my corner. You know, he was the one that went against school regulations and said no. This this guy has has, has got what it takes. Uh, and and he yeah. sort of said he said you were my star pupil. He said then and forever afterwards. You know, he said. And I said, well, you know, you were such a great teacher. And but but to only just discover. That if it wasn't for him sticking his putting his neck on the line, if he'd have just gone with the school, you know, the their rules, he would have gone. I'm sorry, you're too old. Go away. What on earth yeah. could have happened to me? You know. Yeah, that was the guy. That was the guy. Like that, it all goes kind of back to yeah. that to that conversation. Like him going yeah, to bat it, for you. It, like it that's... changed everything. It was the biggest point in my life. Yeah. You know, and also. There's some guy that's writing a, a, a book about the area I grew up in, particularly the, the church. And, uh, and I, I was in a church choir from the ages of 10 to 19. Um, so I, I was singing in a choir before I was playing an instrument. I was singing bass lines before I was playing them. Okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and the only reason why I ended up in the church choir was the, the, the vicar caught me and my friend throwing some bricks at the church. Um and it wasn't any kind of uh, stance a against organized religion. It was it was a couple of no. kids bored out their minds one sunny afternoon. Right. Yeah, just wanting yeah, to exactly. break things. That's it. Like kids don't even kids don't realize the consequences of their actions. You just want to hear yeah. the crash. You just want the stimulus of of the throw and exactly. something breaking. And all the windows were covered in grill, so we couldn't have done them. But we were throwing bricks anyway. Anyway, the vicar comes sure. in and says, "Look, you two, did you do not think about doing something else more positive? You know that, that you're not so bored." He said, "What about joining the choir?" Uh, and I did, and I stayed there for nine years. And it was, and and, and this guy wants me to sort of do a little article about my time and, and basically how it affected my musicality because you know when, when sure. I joined that choir I, I couldn't read music I didn't know anything about harmony and because I stayed there for so long I sang all the different parts and I learned about you know his ear training harmony performance uh, I did a post sure. on on Facebook on Instagram today on this thing I posted an old photograph of me in the choir but so that was that was amazing training as well and that was before I even picked up an instrument you know so yeah so, That's you know, cool, there's, there's been some key things in there. So, it, you know, the fact is, uh, none of this was planned. You know, there's so many people out there that are desperate to, to do what I do and, and have the career I've had. And they want some advice. And I said, it's difficult to, to, to say when, when you want it so bad. But with me, I, I just love music. And I just, you know. Man, I really think that there's, there's something to that in just the... Um... What what you would know what I'm talking about if I could reference mm. the uh, 
uh, the the thing where you put out the the energy and it comes the law of returns yeah, or, or the law of attraction i think something yeah that's what i'm thinking law of attraction yeah. is like when you take the pressure off yeah. of it you take the this oh it's got to happen this way it's got to happen this way and you just relax into it and just specifically make it something that's oh, yeah. joyful and and the other thing is I think you put out that energy within music or within whatever it is you're doing. And and that's what's kind of responded to when you take financial uh, – when you take your finances out of gigging, yeah. you know, and like yeah. <laughs> – it, it, everything kind of opens up once we take the pressure yeah, off of it. hundred percent. And it's funny, the priorities as well, because for me, it's always been about the craft. It always has been. It right. always will be. There's nothing more important for me. Nothing gives me as as much pleasure in in the world of music than than you know practicing, learning, studying, you know, Im improving. I still I still have that. And for me, it's always the most important thing. But you get sort of a lot of players come to me now and they say their first question is, um, how do you get an endorsement deal? How do I get free gear? How do I get <laughs> on the front cover of a magazine? I'm thinking, these are. You yeah, practice. This is you practice. That's what you, know, you do. These, the, uh, I never dreamt that I would be in a high-profile band or being on magazine covers or getting endorsements. Uh, and I, I didn't. And I wasn't interested. It didn't enter my mind. What, what it was, sure. I just loved music. I loved playing an instrument. I loved making music. And I certainly was thrilled that I was able to make a living because, you know, my, my parents both were factory workers um, although my brothers played guitar, they were never professional, you know, so I was so lucky sure. uh, to, to have grown up where I did, which was quite an industrial area. And I ended up doing something that I absolutely loved and adored. And I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. But I, I yeah. love that, that saying. Um, I don't know who it's attributed to, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's really quite a, quite fundamental. And it's the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, I've never heard that one, but I, I completely yeah. agree. You know, I completely and, agree. But the main thing yeah. is, is that, you know, you have to do the work. You have to put the time and you have to be diligent, determined, tenacious, patient. Sure. And the thing is, and you could be all those things and, you know, stuff might still might not happen. You know, you might not be hugely successful, but my God, surely it's, it's worth it. You know, surely, you know, you, you're going to feel better about yourself and, and having a, a achieve so you know you you strove for something strove is that the right word strove. i i know I, I do agree and i also agree with uh the idea that um success and the idea of success is very personal so just being jaco pastorius isn't the only way sure, to success sure. as a musician or as a bass player like you know uh for me this I love this. I love being able to talk with musicians about music. Like this to me yeah. is huge. You know, I love I love being able to transcribe and really get into records and the things I'm doing right now with this online situation. Like that's that's really just really what yeah. fulfills me. And so like that's successful sure, sure. to me. And um I think there's so within success it's just there's a lot of there's a lot of latitude yeah. in there. And everybody's there's room for everybody. It's not just success means you're on the cover of the base magazine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and and you know what, with the social media thing, because I mean, I'm I'm out there. I'm I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and and I still have mixed feelings sure. about it because, you know, sometimes I just find it just a bit kind of stressy. And and some some people thrive on it, and some people, you know, it, it's their main part of their day is posting 
something and and uh, and I never do those things where I post videos of me shredding and that because you know I, I don't have the time I don't have the inclination I, you know that's not who and what I am you know if other people want right. to do it that's great you know but I have noticed the people that do that they get so much attention and so many like hundreds of thousands of likes you know and I can put a photograph of me playing with Jeff Beck or uh, you know <laughs> and you might get a few hundred likes and you just think well it's fine because you know that's who I am and that's what I do. But it is interesting that you know the guy shredding or doing a big slap solo will get, <clears throat> you know, fine. Yeah, I I think that and that that's what that's what kind of gets me dark about the whole thing is because there's no, <laughs> uh, you know, the guy shredding is uh, okay, cool. He put some work yeah, into that, yeah. you know. That's fine. I mean, on all aspects to edit the video, if he did to set up his room to look clean whatever um but but it's just like that's not a that's not a career and that's not making yeah. music with people and i it's hard to subscribe to the fact that that's releasing art into the world sure well you know, you know what i liken it to it's, it's a bit like you know those old victorian um carnivals where you pay to get in and and you're seeing all of these sort of talented trapeze artists whatever doing these these you know things and then but the, the what the people really want to see they want to see the the bearded lady or the... <laughs> i was hoping that's where you were going to go with that yeah the freak yeah, the... show i was hoping that's where you were yeah, going to go know, the, the two-headed goat or whatever you know they want to see <laughs> yeah, the kind of sure. they want to see the freaky stuff you know, and, and it's yeah. kind of, and it feels right. like that with social media, you know, I mean, if I, if I put videos out of, of the stuff that I played with these iconic people, it wouldn't be impressive because what I, what I've had to play with them has been quite sort of basic and fundamental, but it's what I've had to play. It's what they have wanted. It's what they've requested, but it just, it just doesn't yeah. translate well into the world of, of social media. Whereas, you know, if, if, Right, just uh, very everything's very sensationalized. Yeah, you know, and it's it's but as you said, I, I guess it gives everyone a platform and it gives everyone a, a fair a fair shot at things, you know. But I, I think it does create a very false uh, thing, really, which I'm not sure is 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 a terribly terribly good thing. But uh, all, all I know is that I, I still get the most satisfaction for me, like I said, playing my instrument and playing it well. You know, you know, backing someone and them coming up to me saying, "Well, you did a great job," um, and just still yeah. learning. You know, I, I still study. I mean, I I've got books all around me where you know, on all manner of things, and I and I study all the time. I'm always kind of, I always want to learn and improve and uh, evolve. I mean, that's never going to change. That's great. That's great. Man, I'm going to need to have you back on the show. I'm sure we have uh, more, many more hours of uh, stories you can share with everybody. This is fantastic. Well, as, as long fantastic. as, thank you. As long as I haven't bored, bored you too much with this one, then that's very kind. No, no, not at all. Man, thanks so much. Definitely, uh, definitely have a happy new year and uh, maybe, maybe come back after the New Year's Eve and tell us about what happened at the Hoot Nanny, I'd love to hear about how that it's shaped a shame, up. actually, because we, you know, there, there there are some names on the table, but unfortunately, I'm not able to disclose them because I'll get in a load of trouble. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk yeah, about yeah. it after the fact. <laughs> I think then we can talk about, and then we can talk about who might yeah. have been uh, yeah, on that table. If, if, if they can't get these guys, as you said, yeah, it will, it will still make a great conversation of who should have been, who was planned on there. So yeah. All right, listen. It was thanks so much for for inviting me. I hope I hope I didn't sort of you know, bore you too much or rat. Oh no, this was fantastic. This was, this was a lot of fun. I, this was a lot of fun. All right. Cheers, man. Thanks, man. 
you have enjoyed this episode and you're interested to know what else is happening with the base shed, uh, you can you can find me on Facebook backslash the base shed, Instagram at the base shed, Twitter at base shed. All right, that was my talk with Dave Swift. Uh, man, what some interesting stories there? I think are are great. Are great. Uh, again, the the story about how he connected with the Lafaro family and could contributed to the Scott LaFaro book will be up at thebayshed.com backslash podcast backslash Dave Swift. Hope you all check that out. It's a really interesting story. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking about myself going through that process and talk, when he was talking about the LaFaro story. And it's, uh, wow, that, that's some heavy connection to bass history and, uh, and jazz history. And uh, I hope you all get a chance to listen to that. Um, that's what I got, folks. That was Dave Swift. Um, I will catch you on the next one in a minute.